Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer, Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer, Cody Dronick. Our show airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. Our guests tonight include Ann Wheeler, Dale Lee Kwong, Robin Van Eck, and Kathy Calvert. Hello, I'm Lynn Caden. Today, I'm talking to Ann Wheeler about her book, Taken by the Muse, on the path to becoming a filmmaker. The book is a collection of stories set in the 70s when she was in her 20s. It's described as a serendipitous journey when she broke with tradition and found her own way to becoming a filmmaker and raconteur. Throughout Ann Wheeler's career, she has won many, many awards for her work, including the very prestigious Director's Lifetime Achievement Award that was in 2016. Her work includes A War Story, Anne with an E, Bye Bye Blues, Edge of Madness, Loyalty, Better Than Chocolate, and in addition to her films, Anne has directed episodes of Cold Squad, Da Vinci's Inquest, Bomb Girls, Mysterious Ways, This Is Wonderful, and the guard. Through the incredible, engaging stories in this book, I read it in one sitting, even though that wasn't part of my plan, runs a thread of adventure, curiosity, daring, speaking up and speaking out, and the development of a moral compass. You've referred to your inner cowgirl, and tell me about growing up in Edmonton and how that developed your inner cowgirl. Who is she? Well, although I was uh, brought up in Edmonton, I guess I'm a bit of a country gal. Uh, I had an aunt who had a farm just north of Edmonton, and uh, at the age of 11, I, I had a horse. So my, uh, you know, my growing up years were were really enriched by the you know the fact that I had uh, a, a way of transportation. I'd go out to my my aunt's farm, and I would ride with my cousins. And uh, in, in those days, people. I didn't have um, so much fear and concern about kids uh, taking off for the day. We would take off on our horses. Sometimes we'd even sleep overnight 10 or 15 miles away, maybe go to a farm and phone in and say, this is where we are, and we'd camp out and we'd ride about and and, um, really learn to be independent and, I guess, a bit fearless. Uh, We'd go swimming with our horses. Uh, Having that opportunity, I think it really helped form um, my sense of adventure and my sense of confidence. In the introduction, you tell a story of a late-night conversation on the phone with Margaret Lawrence. Tell me about that encounter and what it means to you. Well, I had, in early in my career, one of my first dramas in the 70s was to take one of Margaret's stories and put it to film. And I, I was a bit, I don't know, intimidated, I guess you would say, about taking this story and putting it onto film because it was a story uh, it's called To Set Our House in Order. It really very much took place inside a young woman's head, and it's all about her relationship with her father. And it's very hard to film something like that, so interior. So I, I had to create sort of, uh, you know, situations that were not in the book to really reveal what she was thinking. And uh, so the, trans- the translation from book to film was, was quite a leap, and I, I had wanted to talk to Margaret Lawrence about it and what I was thinking I could do, and she really, um, you know, did not want to uh, to be involved in the making of the film. So 
and I get this phone call from her and I guess that phone call really it really was a, an important phone call to me because we had so much in common because we we had similar backgrounds and uh here I was trying to write about my mother and she had written so much that in her youth in her small town that uh it was a, a really wonderful connection to have, and it was probably the best writing lesson anyone could possibly have because she really talked to me about her process. I was eternally grateful for that. One of the things that you say in that chapter about this kind of writing is that you filled spaces between recollections with possibilities. Well, it is a process you go through. I had, uh, I had by that time... Uh, made a film about my father that was, uh, he was a prisoner of the Japanese, a doctor during the Second World War. And, um, of course, in those days with no computers and uh, even long-distance calls were rather rare. There was a point in making a documentary where you only can get to know what you can get to know. I mean, you run out of options of finding new material and archives and write everybody you can possibly write. And, and so I, I made the film and it was a very successful film and I uh, learned a tremendous amount about filmmaking and about my father. But uh, when I came to writing a film about my mother, I decided, well, it would be interesting to do it as a drama. And of course, you know, when you're doing a drama, you have to know what's going on inside people's heads. It's a story very much drawn from her experiences, but she's a very quiet, private person. And I didn't want to kind of interrogate her about everything she thought and mm -hmm. did, but I knew the events. So I linked the events together and literally, like you say, I filled in the spaces with I, what I imagined had happened or what she'd thought or what people had said, I mean, you have to create that. You have to um, take that risk that right. you're getting as close as you can to the truth. Right. And that movie that you're talking about is Bye Bye Blues, of course. It was filmed in Alberta here. It is. Bye Bye Blues, filmed in Alberta and, and India. And uh, luckily, I still, you know, on a regular basis get correspondence, people still watching it, still wanting to get copies of it and, and uh, getting a hold of me on my website. That's wonderful. In this book, you've selected some stories to tell. How did you decide how to write this memoir and which stories to choose for the book? Well, it was very difficult to choose the stories because, um, you know, I could start when I was a child. I could start any time in my lifetime and there'd be a sequence of events, I suppose. But, you know, I work, still work in film and my, and my crews are now in their 20s and 30s of any of them. And, uh, and I use these stories often to uh, inspire or to uh, teach, and they seem to connect uh, with people. And they all have a lesson to be learned that I've carried on through my life. And people keep saying, write them down, write them down. We don't want to lose these stories. So I had about probably twice as many stories uh, to choose from, but um, I kind of picked the ones that I thought really highlighted a turning point, a decision made, a lesson learned. And there are many interesting lessons and adventures throughout the stories that you tell. One of the other things that happens is you highlight the untold stories of women. And there are a couple of remarkable ones in this book. Could you tell us one of those and what you learned from it? The tendency is to to write about, you know, a famous person who made, has had some great accomplishment. And uh, so I, I, with another a uh, woman, Mona Rasmussen, we were researching really to make a film about the famous five women with the person's case. 
And the film really had never, I don't think, been made about the history of women, pioneer homesteading women, you know, the West from a woman's point of view. And I got this phone call because I was on the radio by a lady who lived in southern Alberta who was in her 90s and very uh, persistently asked me to come down and talk to her because she wanted me to, to hear her story. And I resisted because I thought, well, if there is a great story there, I'd like to have a camera. And I didn't have a camera at the time, but she insisted that it was urgent. And so I drove down on a, uh, a terrible winter day and had tea with her. And she told me the story of coming from, from Ireland after answering some correspondence and taking the train across Canada and getting off in Calgary and being picked up. Uh, by the man who was going to be your husband. And, of course, it was a very hard life, and, and you were with one person often and saw very few other people, and she landed with a man that was a very difficult man and taken out into the wilds and really... Um, I don't want to tell the whole story because I hope people will read it. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think there are many, many situations that we haven't ever imagined that happened in the, in the settlement of, of the West. Mm-hmm. And what was the lesson that she taught you? Well, her story really turned me around. I think that I I thought what well, was much more interesting uh, because it was a story that if I didn't tell it, it would be lost. It right. was a very unique story, and it was a, you know the story of the people who who are not in the history books that are forgotten and. Uh, and I think it really switched my focus to uh, seeking out those stories. And then those are the stories that really fascinate me, the ones that are, are overlooked. You know, a lot of people have incredible, live incredible lives, and we never hear about them. And we, we, I think it's a, a treasure trove of knowledge. And um, I, I, I found it very enriching to uh, kind of take that course in my life. You won the Director's Lifetime Achievement Award. You're the first woman and one of the few Westerners to win that award. You could have gone anywhere. Why stay in Canada? Well, I did, you know, have opportunities to go south. And that's sort of the pattern of our talent in my business anyways. If you have a certain success in Canada, it's almost as though the Canadian art scene feels that you've had your turn. Uh, in terms of financial support and such, and that if you've you know been successful, you should then go to the states and make it there. You know, be a Norman Jewison. I did go down after Bye Bye Blues and Loyalties. I had a lot of interest down south, and I met with people like uh, Robert Redford and Jane Fonda and all sorts of people who had seen the film and they're you know they had they had kind of companies and were looking for for films and writers. I spent weeks going to meetings, but at the time I had two young children and had a tremendous sense of place, and uh, I felt like really I would be giving my life over to the business, and I don't know, it just felt like a, a place that I I wouldn't survive well as emotionally or spiritually, or it's, uh, you know, it's not home. I've always had such a purpose, and I, I felt like I'd lose my purpose down there. And I, and I really didn't want to move my whole family down there for the sake of my career. I thought, well, it's just, it's not why I'm in the business, really, to become famous. I have a kind of a mission. I would lose that if I went south. And there's no lack of stories here in Canada. 
No, there's lots of there's lots of stories to be told, and I find that a lot of people that give themselves completely over to their careers, you know, they they have uh, not the great personal lives always. It's very hard to maintain a family life and old friends and a broad spectrum of social life and interchange with people that aren't doing exactly what you're doing. So it was a choice I made. And I'm not sorry. I have a lot of people that always phone me and say they're thinking about going south and everything. And, and there's wonderful people down there that I can put them in touch with. But for me, it just wasn't the best choice. On the cover of your book is a quote from Alice Walker. It reads, it's been a while since I read an autobiographical work that moved me as this one has. It captures an important era in the lives of women determined to create themselves with much experimentation and no apologies. It demonstrates to our delight, how Ann Wheeler became the respected and beloved artist that she is. That's Alice Walker, author of The Color Purple. High praise coming from another storytelling master. How do you know her? My family has a casa or a casita down in a small town in Mexico, and uh, she has a place close by. My art was part of an art show, and she was looking at it with her hat and her glasses and outfit. I didn't actually recognize her as Alice Walker. We had this wonderfully long, enriching talk about art and color and and history. And and it wasn't until, uh, you know, she said just had bought a place in town and was looking forward to having a swim in the ocean every day. And I said, well, I love swimming too. And we ended up being swimming mates. And then we ended up um, having kind of evenings with Alice and Anne in this small town to raise money for school and sewage system and such, to raise money to help this uh, small town and to bring a community together. And I'm incredibly grateful that she uh, wanted to read my book and then she offered to, to do this. So I, I graciously accepted because I don't think I could have a more uh, impressive quote on the front of my book. What are you working on now? I'm working on a, another literary project and I'm also working on a feature that I hope will be shot in Alberta. It's a personal story from the 60s takes place in Edmonton. It's very hard to get a Canadian feature off the ground, of course, with so much material now streaming. It's hard to do a, a, anything that's going to land in the theater because, of course, the theaters are closed. But we're working away at it, and hopefully, you know, I'll get to make another movie, which I look forward to very much. Me too. I look forward to seeing it, and I wish you great success with it. Thank you very much. Thanks for talking to me about your book. Well, thanks for giving me a call. Dale Lee Kwong is third-generation Canadian Chinese, born in Calgary, Alberta. A graduate of Henry Wisewood Senior High, she received a Bachelor of Applied Arts in Radio and Television from Ryerson University. Dale's first job in television included promotions writer for CFAC Television, commercial producer for CBC Calgary, and a community producer for Rogers Television. In 2016, Dale became involved in the battle to save Calgary's Chinatown from developers wanting exemption from the area's redevelopment plan. Dale is passionate about the importance of Calgary's Chinatown and the sharing of Chinese-Canadian history. She leads a Jane's Walk through Chinatown every May and also offers Chinatown walking tours through I Love YYC Chinatown. The fight to save Chinatown from gentrification continues and Dale plans to keep writing about the past and present in hopes of shaping the future. This is CJSW Writer's Block and I'm Lynn Cadence.
Today, I'll be talking to Dale Lee Kwong about a Jupiter Theater literary podcast experience that takes listeners into the community on a walk, accompanied by a story on their phones. Of course, you can do this alone or with your cohorts while social distancing. Dale's contribution is a literary Chinatown exploration we'll discuss along with the upcoming Chinese New Year. But first, Dale, tell me about the project as a whole, this Explore Your World experience lore. There's eight or nine podcasts, so it's a series. They are all site-specific, and they all do the speculative fiction thing, and it's called Explore, with um, parentheses around EXP and then lore. And so the idea was experience the lore in your community. And the stories are set in locations all over the city, including stories set at Dead Man's Castle in Rideau Park, which I know as Lindsay's Folly. There's one at Tom Campbell's Hill. There's the Olympic Plaza. There's Mokinsis, which is the Bow and Elbow River confluence in the East Village, Garrison Square Park, and a bunch of others, including, mm-hmm. including Chinatown. Tell me a little bit about Master Ugam's Blessing. How did you come up with the story? Uh, Well, the call came in in the summertime, and they were looking for site-specific podcasts, which really interested me because I do normally do Chinatown walking tours anyways, but I couldn't because of the pandemic. So I inquired about it, and there was two stipulations on the submissions. They had to be site-specific, and they had to involve speculative fiction in some way or form. And to be honest, I didn't know what speculative fiction was or is, but the producer gave me a couple of definitions or possibilities. So he said, fables, fairy tales, time travel, alternate history, something outside of the story that had a big impact on the story and could change things. And so I thought, well, I don't really know if I can do this. So I wrote back and I said, I'm kind of scared shitless, so I'll say yes. And he was really excited about it. Normally, I don't say yes to things that scare me, but I was trying like a new thing in the last couple of years, saying yes to the universe. So that's what I've been doing, and I'm so glad that I did. So I remembered like a really long time ago when I was taking a writing class at UC. I had written this short story that kind of went nowhere, but it had a really beautiful beginning. And it was about this stage in Chinatown who lived in a hill cave. And in that story, he, his wife had died and he had sent the daughter down to a monastery and he called her back to give her a blessing before he died. But the very beginning of the story described the mountains and everything. I guess that when I was walking through Chinatown, I noticed the, the bluff on the Q Bluff from uh, the river right by Sinlock Park. And I went, oh, I wonder if I could use that thing. And so I went back and found the story. And um, I only actually read the first page. And right away, I just knew I could use it. So the podcast that you hear went through several incarnations. The very first one, it was going to be called Ghost Chinatown. And it was going to be like Chinatown is dead and it was like Heritage Park. And so there was this little tiny, uh, in my mind, I had imagined like a miniature Chinatown that you could sort of explore. And then the ghosts were going to be the speculative fiction part, which would be like dead people who were like come back to life. So we'd interview James Short or some of the people in Chinatown. And then 
that can really work. So then I was like, I, if I wanted to be site-specific, then I went on my first tour and I realized, oh, people are actually walking for the whole thing. So they walked for at least, at least half an hour. So it's like, oh, so I don't need to be tied to just one location. So then that changed my location to actually Chinatown. And then at one point I was stealing my character, Connie Fischer, who does the uh, walking tours of Chinatown when I was with ATP, the 10-minute play festival. That's the character I used. So I was going to name uh, two characters in the play, one Connie and one Fuchsia. But then that just seemed really cheesy and, and like it didn't really serve me. So then that morphed, and I named the two people Yin and Yang, which became the twins who factor in the story. And following their journey from China to Calgary and then throughout Calgary's Chinatown, the anecdotes about Chinatown and things that happened in the city of Calgary are, are all true. And so I had dates and years and stuff like that, and it was really cumbersome. So when I stripped all that out, it really helped a lot, plus add to the fact that because I cover more than 100 years, you kind of forget that the characters are like 150 years old or however they are, like it's less noticeable. And in the story, they are immortal anyway, so it didn't really matter. But to me, it made more sense. It's an interesting confluence of passions, right? Right. It's very particular. It's Chinatown, it's poetry, it's theater, it's literature, and often food. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, for sure food uh, yeah. in between all of those things. The whole thing began kind of by accident. I was asked to participate in a project at Lost 112, which was the writing of a fictional novel in real time. Uh, it would take one year. I think it was 12, 10 or 12 months. And so uh, every month there was a new chapter written by a Calgary writer. And I had chapter eight, which was Chinatown. And so I had to do all this research for Chinatown, I believe it was 2015 or 16, and so I did. And I don't normally write fiction, or I feel like I don't write fiction, but I uh, gave a crack at it, and it was a really good experience for me. And from that, they decided to do an East Village walking tour that year. And we also included Chinatown, which was quite a hike from East Village to Chinatown, plus touring around both locations. But that introduced me to the Jane's Walk and to doing Jane's Walks. And that's when I first started. And that was also the year that um, some proposals, a particular proposal for a large parking lot in Chinatown, went to City Hall. And it really, the way it was proposed, would have destroyed the makeup of Chinatown. It was a slippery slope of uh, relaxing some of the restrictions and stuff. And so I got really involved in the Save Chinatown campaign or whatever you want to call it. And so I use the Chinatown walking tours as a way to expose Chinatown and its challenges and its history to non-Chinese people, in fact, because I know Chinatown isn't just for Chinese people. And so uh, that has always been kind of my my motive, I guess. So from that, I've written other things. I did a, a walking tour booklet of Chinatown. That was also for Lost 112. I've done a couple of poems that have been published in anthologies. One of them, Symphony edited with Chris Demeanor, which was the um, city of Calgary and verse and visual. And then the walking tours initially I didn't know if there was enough material in just Chinatown, so I actually jam-packed the first couple of walking tours. So 
One I did with Larissa Lai, and she did three readings of different pieces of material. And then I did another one with Wayman Chan. And Doreen Vanderstoop came, and Dory told a story by Paul Yee, which was really beautiful. And that was one year. And then after that, I realized there's enough material just in Chinatown by itself. So I kind of eliminated that. And now there's this one. I don't know what I would do after the pandemic's over or maybe my walking tour career is over because I feel like people could do this on their own. Well, it is a wonderful activity to do on your own. It was a pandemic project and it's the perfect sort of activity to get outside and look around and experience the city and its history and the story without having to have somebody be with you. Right. Yeah. So I imagine there are people who are doing it, and hopefully more people will hear about it and um, do it. Yes, for sure. Um, I had a couple of different hats for this project. I was also one of the performers. So, you know, during the workshops, I was taking notes as a performer, but also taking notes as a playwright. But now that I'm through it and I can look back and so forth, I really wanted to do something more with it. So I just registered for a five-month-long TYA workshop. TYA is a theater for young adults. And um, you're supposed to come with ideas. And you actually work on this project throughout the five months. Every, I don't know what it is, three or four weeks, there's like a session with one of the instructors guiding whatever project you've chosen. So I'm going to be taking this and hopefully adapting it into something. I don't know what. So you haven't heard the end of Master Ugam's Blessing. (laughs) Chinese New Year is fast approaching. February 12th, it's going to be the year of the ox. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say of Chinese New Year? Oh, my God, I'm so looking forward to Chinese New Year's for a lot of reasons. So this year was the year of the rat, and I am a rat. And usually when it's your year, like whatever your zodiac is, it's not really your year. Like it's not a good year for you if, if you're an ox, and next year may not necessarily be your best year. But as we know, the year of the rat also coincided with 2020, the pandemic and all the horrible things that happened. And that really kicked up speed in March in 2020. And Mm -hmm. so for me, I think of the pandemic as being something from the year of the rat, not as being something from 2020. And so I'm really looking forward to the year of the ox coming and wiping out all the bad jaws from the year of the rat. And if you think I'm crazy... If you think back, it's 12 years that the last year of the rat was, which was 2008, which was the financial woes of 2008. So I think there's really something to the year of the rat theory. And that is my main reason I'm looking forward to the year of the ox coming. What will you do to celebrate Chinese New Year this year? Well, I'll do the normal things you do at Chinese New Year, which is like you're supposed to clear all your debts and uh, wash your car, get a haircut, I guess I can't do that, clean your house, hang up Chinese poems and so forth, and then you have these dinners with your family, and I just have a bubble of one right now, or two, I guess, with my mom. So you would have on Chinese New Year's Eve a fairly large dinner, and you're supposed to cook extra rice. So like on February 11th, you should cook a really big pot of rice so that you don't have to cook on New Year's Day. And then that means you'll have a prosperous year. And so you, you don't even have to cook on New Year's. In fact, 
you're not supposed to do anything on New Year's, so that's why you do it all in advance. You're not allowed to wash your hair. You're not allowed to sweep. All that stuff gets done in advance. And then you would just be visiting friends and eating leftovers on New Year's Day. So I guess I, I guess my mom and I will make a big meal and maybe she'll give me leftovers so I can bring them home. <laughs> That's all I really know that I'm doing. I will um, definitely go to Chinatown because it'll still be fun to go there. And part of the reason I reached out to you guys is that I was hoping that your listeners would come to Chinatown for Chinese years and do the Master Ugam's Blessing walking tour. Excellent idea. So anybody can celebrate Chinese New Year by doing some of the things you've suggested and take that guided literary tour of Chinatown and maybe pick up some Chinese food. For sure. Yes. And I'll tell you where to get your Chinese food. On 2nd Avenue Southeast is what we kind of call Restaurant Row in Chinatown. There's something like eight or nine restaurants. So there's like Ho Wan, Calgary Court, Golden Inn, Great Taste. So that is a really great street to do your um, pickup of Chinese food. And if you want to pick up dumplings, there's a couple of places where you can buy for much cheaper and much better than your average grocery store, Chun Mei Dim Sum and also Good Friend Food Company. They both sell the frozen dim sum items. So those are my pieces of advice. Oh, one more, which is the barbecue place, Wise Barbecue, W-A-I, on 3rd Avenue on the west side. They have barbecued pork, roast pork, duck, soy chicken, Vietnamese sausage, as well as frozen dim sum and jung, which is like a rice bundle, like sticky rice, filled with cool stuff. I've been to many of those places. Worth the trip, right? Definitely. And definitely doing the podcast while you're there. Thank you so much for talking to me, Dale. I wish you a happy Chinese New Year. And happy Year of the Ox to you and everybody. Robin Van Eck is a Canadian author who grew up in British Columbia. Robin writes fiction, literary, contemporary, horror, weird, and offbeat, and creative nonfiction. Her work has appeared in Lamplight Magazine, Woven Tales Press, Alberta Views, and various other online and print publications, both in Canada and internationally. Her first novel, Rough, was released in November 2020 with Stonehouse Publishing, and she is into the third draft of her second novel, In Lieu of Flowers. This is Writer's Block on CSW and I am Lynn Cadence. Today I'm speaking with Robin Van Eck, author of her first novel, Rough. Rough is a mystery set in Calgary at the time of the 2013 flood, and it's about sleeping rough, homelessness. It's also about the relationship between a father and his daughter. What inspired you to write this book, Robin? Well, I think it initially started with the flood. The flood was such a huge moment in Calgary's history, and um, I kind of always thought it would be an interesting backdrop, I guess. You know, and I've always been very passionate about homelessness and other social issues during the flood. So many people were displaced, and I think at that moment, like, it, it became very apparent that we're not all that different. Made me start thinking about it a little bit more and, and how I could do my part to uh, bring more attention to it. Mm-hmm. At the heart of the book is the father-daughter relationship. And you mentioned there's some correlation to your own or you were 
exploring your own father-daughter relationship in some of this work. Can you tell me about that? I've always had this tendency to write a lot about my mother-daughter relationship. And <laughs> uh-huh. um, and I and I and I think like when it when it came to this story and it, and it was you know and I realized it was going to be a father-daughter focus. There there were a lot of parallels between my own relationship with my father. You know, my father did still does have an addiction to alcohol, which has always been there. And and there have been moments where he's been very, very close to homelessness himself, even though it's never actually happened. And I think at the heart of it, I just really wanted to explore that situation or or how, how addiction can impact our lives so dramatically and how families can still survive through it. Mm-hmm. How did you do your research? So you have you had some personal experience to draw on, but mm-hmm. what else did you do to research? A lot of reading, <laughs> um, a lot of YouTube videos. That's where it started, was with just looking at various situations of homelessness. A lot of the stuff I initially saw were the situations that go on in the United States, specifically in LA and that, and how bad it is there. But there were some just amazing stories from various individuals. One of the most interesting ones I found, I can't remember exactly what it was called, but it was a a documentary that actually dealt very specifically with the Calgary homeless community. And I found that on YouTube as well. And it was just a great glimpse into a world that I wasn't all that familiar with. What struck you about that video? What did you learn? I think what surprised me the most is that nobody ever complained about their situation. It was just who they were and this is how they lived. And, you know, and even though you could tell, like, you know, of course, nobody wants to be living on the streets, but they seemed just very content in in who they were and accepted Mm -hmm. their situation. Beyond that, like, I did actually go downtown and and talk to a few people. I would um, take lunch down with me and and find find people and just sit and chat with them, Um, you know, how were you received? Actually, pretty well. Like, for the most part, it was good. You know, I'd ask them if, if they were hungry. And, you know, and them were like, oh, definitely, right? But then I would sit down and, and talk to them while they ate. I think ultimately what they really want is for people to pay attention. You know, they want people to come and talk to them and, and give them the time of day. So most of the people I talked to had no problem. What did you discover in those conversations? Probably not really anything that I wasn't already aware of, but, you know, some of the things surprised me were that a lot of the people down there aren't even from Calgary. A lot of Maritimers that I ended up talking to came out here for work and then, you know, situations just took a turn and then they found themselves in this situation. A few people who had families, you know, or had gone through a divorce and just couldn't get themselves together after the fact. Mm-hmm things like that. But I learned a lot about like what it was like to live down there, live on the streets. And I mean, from their perspectives, obviously. The river is a character in this book. While many of us, most of us have referred to the river as being angry during the flood, your river is personified in many different ways and possesses lots of characteristics. Tell me more about what you think about the river and your relationship with the river. 
you know, I think everybody has different experiences with nature in general. Nature can be volatile. <laughs> um, nature can be beautiful because it's got so many different facets to it. And I think ultimately what I was trying to do was to show a parallel between society and people and just kind of how we how we view things, right? Like, I mean, a lot of us are beautiful on the outside, but yet there's so much going on underneath. Like an undertone. Yeah, right? And that can go any, that can go any direction, right? Like some people figure out how to deal with, you know, whatever's going on inside them. Others kind of explode and then you get that anger, you know, but I think also in terms of society, like, you know, we want so desperately to help in a lot of situations, but we don't know how. And particularly difficult in the cases of mental health and addictions and and homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Did you come up with any ideas about what would be helpful? Through the writing of the book? Probably not. After the fact, though, you know, I've seen a lot of really interesting things. So there was this group of women downtown in um, I think Kensington area who mm-hmm. took it upon themselves to raise some money for one particular homeless man and get him get him a place to live. And I just thought, wow, like this story is amazing. And all this was coming like after my book had been launched, and it was just like this is how we do it. Like this is how I think community has to come together because we can't just do it all on our own. And much the way the community came together to help pick up the pieces of all the people who lost their homes. How did your book change shape through the editing and writing process? What did it start out as and how did, mm-hmm. how did it develop over time? started out very short, actually. My first draft, I think, was 60,000 words and I was, you know, or a little bit less. And I was just like, oh, this is not long enough for a novel. What the heck am I doing? Which, in retrospect, it probably would have been fine at that length, but um, I had been reading so much about, you know, the average length of a novel should be about seventy to 72,000 words, and I'm just like, oh, I've got a little bit of work to do. I think the things that changed the most is, like, in the original draft, the river was not a character. That kind of came out later. The river sections were very loosely there, I guess, I should say. So I shouldn't say they weren't there, but um, they were actually from a different character's perspective. So it wasn't from the river's perspective. And then I ended up removing that particular perspective because I felt like it was giving too much away. Mm -hmm. Because the book is a little bit of a mystery and I didn't want to, I was like, no, no, you know, this is just, it's like everyone's going to figure this out way too early. And what was the role of the Alexander Writers Center to that? What's, you're now the executive director, but you have a long-standing relationship with the center, yep. Mm-hmm. I joined the Alexander Writers Center in 2003 as a, as a writer, just, you know, someone who wanted to get better at writing. I've always wanted to write ever since I was a kid. Stories and reading was, you know, were always a huge, huge part of my life. But, yeah, it was early 2003, I believe, that I... Uh, realized, no, I need to go take a class. And I searched and searched for, you know, I looked at U of C, continuing ed courses. I looked at Mount Royal. And ultimately, I was like, no, I wanted something that was more community-based. I didn't want something that felt too academic. And I landed upon the Alexandra Writer Center. And, and it's just, it's been amazing. 
I would not be where I am now if it wasn't for that that organization and the great instructors and support that are available to new and emerging writers. And how is it faring through the pandemic? Really well. Yeah, we're um, quite excited that we were able to transition very quickly into online learning. It took a little bit for people to get used to the idea of having to do everything virtually, but now it's been great. Yeah. And how has your routine, including your writing routine, changed with the pandemic? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm working from home a lot more. (laughs) I actually have found it very difficult to focus on writing. I am typically an early morning writer, but so much else going on and trying, you know, keeping things going with the Alexander Writer Center. I found that my focus was there rather than on what I wanted to do. And I think in some ways, I also was aware that this book was coming out this year. So I thought, you know what, I'm not even going to worry about it right now. My final edits actually happened in February. So right before we shut down, right? So I was glad that I, you know, I got Mm -hmm. those out of the way before all of this hit really hard. So I don't know what would have happened if I had had to be doing <laughs> doing my edits through this as well. Oh, right. And what's the next project? Well, I'm working on another manuscript, which is just about complete. It focuses, again, on social issues. It also takes place in Alberta. No floods, no other natural disasters <laughs> either. This one's focused actually on uh, medical assistance and dying. And was that because of a personal connection or experience? It started out as an exploration to try and understand both sides of it. While I didn't experience it specifically for myself, my father-in-law a few years ago was terminally ill, and he talked about doing it, saying, you know what, I've lived a great life. I've had everything that I've needed. I should be able to do this. My first reaction actually surprised me. Like my husband was kind of like, great, if this is what he wants, let him do it. To me, like suddenly it was like this huge punch in the gut. That's such a heavy decision to make. And I reacted a lot differently than I expected that I would. Ultimately, he couldn't do it because my mother-in-law did not agree. And also he ended up developing dementia really quickly. So he wouldn't have been able to make that decision anyway. Well, another difficult and worthwhile topic for sure. So what other activities are you engaged in these days besides writing? What do you do for fun? What do I do for fun? Um, Yeah. No, I I love to read. I've kind of, I didn't do a lot of it last year. I was too distracted by everything that was going on. So I made a commitment this year that I am going to read more. I've been reading. I like to get outdoors, going for walks, taking my dog out, hiking, biking. What is on your reading list these days? Well, I do want to read a lot more Alberta writers. I definitely recommend read local as much as you possibly can. We have such a great pool of writers in this province. Right now, though, I am reading Where the Crawdads Sing. So, no, it's not an Alberta book, but it's still a very... Very lovely book so far. Read Alberta. That's what I say. Congratulations on the publication of your first novel. Rough. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. 
Kathy Culbert grew up in the Canadian Rockies. In 1974, she became one of the first female national park wardens in Canada. In 1977, she was a member of the first all-women expedition of Mount Logan, and in 1989, was on the first all-women ski traverse of the Columbia Mountains from the Bugaboos to Rogers Pass. We got a hold of Kathy to talk about her latest release, Vertical Reference, about the life and times of helicopter pilot Jim Davies. Kathy Calvert, thank you so much for joining me on CJSW Writer's Block today to talk about your new book, Vertical Reference the life of legendary mountain helicopter rescue pilot, Jim Davies. Thank you very much for inviting me on your show. It was such a joy to read this book. Um, it is really a piece of incredible history for the, for the national parks and for the province of Alberta, too. Tell me a little bit about this book so that the listeners get a sense of it. Okay. Um, uh Vertical, uh, first of all, I'll explain the, the title. Vertical reference is where the helicopter pilot has to uh, be aware of how close the helicopter is to the ground. And uh, it's uh, what is considered a very extremely unnatural way to fly a helicopter. And it's probably the hardest uh, that, uh, flying that they have to learn to do. Um, and that often is the case of... Uh, a lot of uh, mishaps is that the pilot loses sight of where exactly the ground is. So that's, and in my interviews with Jim, he kept referring to that all the time. It's the most important thing uh, mm-hmm. how the pilot needs to know. So, and difficult. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and difficult to know because, I, I, if I recall, there's a, a story in the book, an anecdote that really brought it to mind where. Because when you're in the chopper, you don't know if you're 20 feet or 200 feet away from this, you know, snow slope. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and there's a wonderful story where he, he gets the person in the chopper with him to, to throw out his backpack, I think, right? I, I'd love for you to, to, to uh, tell us that story. Sure. Um, well, that was in the, uh, the very early days uh, when... Um Helicopters were fairly underpowered and um, didn't have the jet propulsion, so they were limited as to how high they could go and, and uh, what they could do. But on this occasion, it was uh, Hans Moser's uh, sort of inaugural flight kind of thing into um, the Bugaboos, uh, where he established his uh, heli-skiing lodge, and, and that's what Jim actually first started flying uh, here in Canada on a regular basis. Uh, was the beginning of heli skiing with Hans Moser, and Hans didn't understand quite the uh, problem with uh, not with exactly finding out where the ground is, and he was a bit impatient. So, uh, and he asked Jim to take him up to this uh, call uh, in in basically very bad weather. And when they got there, they they couldn't see anything. And uh, mm-hmm. Uh, but Jim was always very laid back, and he just casually told Hans, he said, you know, before you get out, uh, I can't land because I don't know where the ground is. Uh, maybe you should throw out your pack. <laughs> and when <laughs> he did, uh, it went down 200 feet. And and from that point on, Hans had an awful lot more respect for uh, Jim's uh, decisions and his ability to know when uh, he needed to be um, careful of where, the, where, where he was, and again, establish some sort of reference, and uh, the reference now was now the pack on the ground. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah that, that probably looked very small from where they were. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it totally shocked uh, 
Hans Moser, and he had a lot more respect for, you know, um, being careful with uh, where he took the where he asked him to fly, particularly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this this the story of Jim's life and career as a, a pilot encompasses um, what almost fifty years more 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 right. Well, yeah, the, the book starts right from when he was born, um, and he was born uh, uh, basically in Banff, so he was a, a very essentially a local boy, and his father was in the warden service, and uh, so he had quite a, uh, an eye-opening experience growing up basically in the wilds of, uh, of the mountains, because uh, back then there was very few roads or trails and his parents would take him right out to the warden cabins to go up with his uh, brother. Mm-hmm. So he uh, had a very rural and, and you know, um, very basic upbringing with, uh, with nature. He was very close to that and developed a very, um, I think through that he developed a huge um, sensitivity to animals. And uh, there's another story in there that kind of relates to this. <laughs> Um, but anyway, he um, then uh, they de- basically moved back to Banff, and uh, his father quit the uh, uh, warden service and became a contractor. And uh, but Jim showed an awful lot of independence right from the beginning, and um, uh, became a very uh, good skier. For one thing, he, he I think he was uh, at one point the uh, Canadian championship for uh, uh, downhill in, in one of the um, uh, races in, in uh, Whistler. So he was very talented that way, and he was also um, quite talented as an artist. So there's many aspects of his life that a lot of people aren't that aware of. Right, yeah. Um, and in the 80 years that he's lived in and around Banff and the national parks, he, he must have experienced uh, an incredible um body of knowledge, not just about flying choppers, exactly. but also about, about that whole world of the park, hey? Mm-hmm. And that, that's very, a very interesting question because, uh, or a statement, because uh, when Jim started, there, there really wasn't any um, guidelines or rules uh, surrounding helicopters. They were just sort of coming onto the scene of uh, being useful in industry and, and all kinds of emotional uses that it used now and discovering the capacity of, of the helicopter. But uh, he was fairly unrestricted uh, in the park as to where he went, and, uh, uh, and particularly with rescues, he was automatically involved. So he had to have a very thorough knowledge of the park, and he would have uh, fuel caches stashed around the park, and he knew where they were. And uh, sometimes his, his schedule was quite busy because he not only did rescues when he started working for parks, by the way, I should mention that uh, he worked for Hans for eight years, and then uh, uh, Peter Furman, who was the airline specialist in in Banff, asked him to, if he would be interested in flying rescues, and mm-hmm. that was kind of the turning point for for Jim. But his uh, previously to that, he had learned the, the park very well, knew the winds, the the, the weather conditions. Uh, uh, where he was, he was never, you know, he wasn't going to get lost. He knew where his caches were. So his mind was actually full of all this knowledge, and uh, uh, it's quite remarkable how uh, how he held it together that way. Right, and, and I was also struck by, over and over again by how um, 
Jim and his peers, um, you know, they had this vision and they had a tenacity too. So, for yes. example, you mentioned early on that at first helicopters didn't have the power they have today, but nor did they have some of the um, adaptations, shall we say, that would help them with a rescue. So there's fantastic stories of, of you know, them figuring out how to add uh, pieces <laughs> for the slings to the bottom yeah. of these uh, early choppers. And um, I was really struck by how incredible this collective body of knowledge is and how much we take it for granted now, um, you know, that if we blithely end up in the bush and in trouble, there, there are, are these crack teams who, who know exactly how to come, come to our aid. That's right. Yes. And right now they, I think they're at their apex of, uh, of, uh, being one of the most professional rescue, uh, Teens in, in in the world actually, um, and this was quoted from uh, uh, Gerald Biner, who uh, established uh, heli slinging in, in Switzerland and, and taught pilots in in Nepal how to fly and, and, and very dangerous conditions. And he mentioned that that there's only two countries that equals Switzerland, and that's uh, Canada and um, uh, New Zealand. Wow. So, uh, and we have the uh, honor of being able to say we've never lost uh, a person, uh, a rescue person or a um, um, person to be evacuated. There's never been any deaths or any, any uh, accidents. It's a pretty clean record. And that's the testament, isn't it, to the skill and the care and the, um, the teamwork of the yeah. people doing the rescuing. Well, it is amazing because... Uh, uh, when we first started, and, and I, I wasn't there for the first year, but I was there after it was really getting established. But, uh, yeah, with the uh, uh, underpowered helicopter. Um, but, yeah, uh, Peter Furman had the vision. He was the Alpine Specialist for, for, for Banff, and there was the Alpine Specialist in Jasper, Willie Fister. But uh, Peter was in his backyard one time when another fellow came and, t- and showed him an article on how they were doing rescues in Switzerland, and that just, uh, to Peter, that was just uh, an incredible aha moment because uh, they were losing a lot of people uh, in rescues because without the helicopter, you have to do a land rescue, and it's often extremely difficult to go um, way back into the bush and then haul somebody out by horse or by, by foot. And uh, quite often they may not survive, so mm-hmm. uh, it's just too too long and too too arduous to really uh, really be effective. But of course, those days there weren't that many rescues. But um, I might add, about time that Peter uh, just you know decided to follow this path and um, implement it, he he did so sort of against some regulation, but. Uh, that is exactly the time when the um, what we call the baby boomers had discovered the Rockies, but they had little experience in um, in climbing or hiking or you know any of the dangers that you encounter if you're not prepared to travel in in the in the mountains. And so there was a huge um, uh, increase in rescues that had to be done, and uh, the only way to get them done effectively was with the helicopter, mm-hmm. and it wasn't. Uh, shortly after uh, Jim had reviewed the uh, the whole system, 
they had a, a very vital rescue on Mount Aegis, and that saved the young uh, cadet. He was hit by a rock, and uh, that literally saved his life, but it was a very dangerous rescue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, as I was reading the, the book in the summer and, and into the fall, um, it struck me that there were echoes because of the pandemic, actually, um, of that. I was up in the Cinnaboyne in uh-huh. late July, and the, the, one of the things they, they said was that, you know, they just don't know what's going on with the helicopter schedule. It's not as predictable as usual because there was such a demand for rescues because, yeah. you yeah. know, everyone fled the city and, and walked off into the woods uh, and not necessarily people prepared really? for the woods. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that is something I, I also, in uh, researching Jim's book, I had um, uh, also um, the book that I'd written on uh, Guardians of the Peaks, which was about our rescue service. And uh, so I had a great source there, but um, and a lot of interviews. Um, yes, uh, the... Um, they were, I was talking to the people in Kananassas because after Kananassas got established, they also put in a rescue service uh, very, very closely tied to them. Mm-hmm. And, um, but unfortunately, under a different government, they are not getting any increases in staff. But at the same time, this year particularly, um, they could not believe how many people came to the mountains because they had nowhere else to go. And now there seems to be a rediscovery of our own uh, our own province, and um, and there's a huge learning curve for people to go out there. So the the number of um, rescues just skyrocketed, but the personnel didn't, and um, yeah. they were pretty busy. And they're they're anticipating a very very busy and and fairly dangerous winter this year. Wow. Hey. Well, the, the avalanche conditions are pretty terrible, <laughs> and they're going to yeah. remain that way for a while. Um, yeah, with all this flop, flip-flop in the temperatures, hey? Well, the early, the early layers, layers that were laid down are, are pretty close to the ground, and they're all very unstable. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, they now say that they can't fly in the winter anywhere without seeing ski tracks. So, <laughs> And that was before the pandemic. Um, but yes, I think uh, people, uh, young people, are starting to rediscover our, our what we have right here, and they're they're eager to get out there. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I hope a lot of people who are awakening to the the uh, incredible beauty of the the Rockies and and the love of of hiking and skiing in them read your book first, because I think <laughs> it it uh, will really give them a a foundation of. Well, everything that we can be grateful for, for one thing, and yeah. um, also an awareness of, of just how tenuous it is, one foot in the wrong spot, and right. suddenly you're in a world of hurt. Yes, yeah, and uh, and people are often unaware of how quickly that, you know, that can happen, or, you know, un- in places that you would least suspect that you'd have a problem, and... Um, and yeah, it's very quick, and suddenly they're in trouble. And uh, you know, if they're lucky, they do get out. But well, yeah. they do if they have. Now we have cell phones, of course, and um, and and spot I think locators. Yes, so, that's right. And that's definitely that also uh, contributes a lot to the calls that they're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, 
people are more relying on making a call for help rather than, say, necessarily trying to solve the problem themselves. Right. Um, and I think there might be a learning curve. Trying, you know, I think there's people that are out there trying to uh, learn how to better, you know, look after themselves when they're there because uh, some of these things could be avoided for sure. That was part one of our interview with Kathy Culvert. You can check out the second half on next month's episode. You have been listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW. This is co-host Cody Dronick signing off.